Hello, and welcome to Straight from the Tap, a podcast about water treatment straight from the people who live it. I'm Debbie Statler, owner and publisher of Water Conditioning and Purification International Magazine. Today, we're going to talk resin technology with Matt Worth, General Manager of the Pargreen Sales Engineering Water Division in Chicago. He's also an approved trainer for several programs and member of the Water Conditioning and Purification International Magazine Technical Review Committee. Matt brings over 42 years of experience on multiple levels of the water industry, from heavy industrial systems to private well applications. Thank you, Matt, for talking with me today. Thank you. Let's jump right in. So let's start at the beginning. How did you get into the water treatment industry. Your bachelor's degree is in management and communications. Well, like so many people in our industry, I am second generation. We're actually going into third and fourth generations within the industry. If you ever look at our industry, it is uh, widely owned and managed by families. So having grown up in the business, actually, I was uh, I was born back in 1958. My father was already in the water treatment business at that time, so I was born into water. So my decision to uh, work in the water industry was natural. My father did it. I want to do what my dad did. But when I graduated back in 1977, there were no programs where you could go and become educated in the water business. It just didn't exist. And actually today, it'd be very, very hard to find a water program. So I basically created my own. I went on to uh, engineering school at the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology out in Rapid City and got my basic engineering and then got married. Wife and I moved to Minneapolis and I went to Golden Valley Business School there and got a business uh, degree. And then from there, I uh, went into business. 20 years I spent working in a water business. And for the last 10 of that, I ran a family business. Once I had put uh, 20 years in, in Minnesota, my wife and I decided to venture out and uh, I turned the family business over to the family and went back to college. I was 43 years old, but when you're a self-employed uh, business person going out into corporate America, you need to have a little more horsepower. You need a little more uh, juice to your resume. So how did I end up with a organizational management and business degree? Well, I uh, went back to school to pad my resume with something that would interest a future employers. And I'm very happy I did. Interesting. So you've balanced water treatment learning with basic business, organizational management type learning. So you had the best of both worlds. That was the intent. Yes, it was. Well, let's get technical. You wrote an article recently on uniform particle sides versus Gaussian resin. Where are you seeing UPS used instead of conventional resin? And is there an advantage to either type of resin? Well, I have uh, been using the uh, Gaussian resin for years and years, like all of us, because it is the conventional resin we all use. It is a it is a mesh size that's sized along what's called the Gaussian sizing distribution, which is basically a bell curve that is set up so that most of the resin falls in the high side of a bell curve, if you've ever looked at that. And that is what we've all used. Now there's, within that resin lies kind of a sweet spot and uh, it's what we call uniform bead size. And what they basically do, there's two ways to do it. They'll uh, take and screen the Gaussian or the conventional resin and take the big beads out, trying to get beads of a similar size and I'll touch on that briefly while they do that. Then there's a jetting process that they do to uh, 
be more exact with their sizing and have less waste because if you're screening a 1650 mesh uh, resin lot, you're going to end up with a lot of waste. A lot of big beads are going to get thrown away. So anyway, Gaussian resin, conventional resin, is something we use every day and it's just fine for standard softening. But when you're trying to fine tune industrial softener, bigger machines, or even residential softeners in trying to get the water use and the chloride discharge down to a minimum, what you want to do is have a predictability of outcome with your chemistry. And when the beads are the same size, things happen at the same rate, the diffusion through the bead. And let's touch on it real quickly. Beads are porous. So I know most of us in the water industry know that they kind of look like a spaghetti ball. They're porous and 99% of the ion exchange happens inside the bead. But for the conversation here, you need to know that. So anyway, water travels through the beads. And if the beads are the same size, the water and the ions pass through the beads at the same rate. And it's very predictable the exact amount of salt we need to use to regenerate it. Let's, we're talking softeners here right now. And, and then flow rates, pressure drops, all those things. Water used to flush them out because they're a little smaller. You take the great big beads out. Some cases, beads that are four times bigger than the smallest beads. You use just the sweet spot of the resin, I guess, in layman's terms. And in doing that, while we're not creating huge percentage differences in salt use and, and water use, we could reduce it as much as 10% or even more, depending on what we're doing in an upflow regenerated softener or uh, any uh, technology that really needs an exact outcome when you're done. So what you're doing basically is you're taking a sweet spot of a resin lot and uh, using that to reduce your uh, water use, your chloride use, and then also get uh, a more predictable water quality because the beads are all the same size and they react at the same rate as you run water down through the machine, getting down towards what we call the heel of the softener or the bottom of the softener. The water is passing evenly through the beads so we can actually extract more soft water through the bed than we could with a conventional resin. And that means less leakage, less hardness escaping. And so much depends on the type of project and, and what the goals are. Like you said, if you're looking for a much more uniform outcome, the UPS is going to make a lot more sense. So what about solvents? With close regulation on solvents in the U.S. and the environmental benefits, non-solvent resins are becoming a popular choice. Where are non-solvent and solvent resins appropriate? Is cost really the main factor between the two? Well, on cost, let's just touch on that real briefly. There's not a huge percentage cost difference between a non-solvent and a solvent resin. It's in a cubic foot of softening resin, it's just a few dollars. But what you've got when you make resin, you make these little spaghetti beads, these little plastic beads. When they're initially made, they're inert. They have no charge to them. So you have to put a charge or an ion exchange site on those beads. Let's just stay on the softening topic. So you're making a water softener bead and you need to put what's called functional groups or ion exchange sites on that bead. So they'll put a sulfuric acid, it's called, um, it's called a sulfonation process, but basically they're running a sulfuric acid through these resin beads to put these functional groups on. Now these beads have shrunk. The beads actually swell and shrink based on what's been put into them. So you've got these beads, you've got this acid in them, and you have to wash it out and get the acid off them and then neutralize them with sodium. Well, if you do it 
in a non-solvent manner. You have to be very cautious. You have to be very careful what you're doing because beads will swell so fast they'll break. You'll get what's called osmotic shock. They'll split. To make beads less expensively and not concern yourself with that, they'll pre-swell the beads, I guess is what you'd call it. They use a dichloroethene, a DCE, to swell the beads up so they don't break during the softenation process. Well, that's regulated. That has a maximum contaminant level, an MCL of 0.005 milligrams per liter. That's only five parts per billion. So obviously this is some pretty nasty stuff that they use. And they try to wash this out of the resin after they uh, sulfonate it, put the functional groups on, but it can still be held up in that resin. So you've got this chemical, the solvent in these beads. And when the resin goes out to the end user, say in a residential application, they're given instructions at startup to try and flush the beads out to make sure all of this DCE is gone. But how do you guarantee that? I mean, you, this goes out to a homeowner, might go out through a big box store, might go out to someone that's not sure what they're doing. And they just put it on a line and now you flushed all this stuff into your into your home, into you. Into you. So uh, to make beads without that DCE, it's just preferable in any application to have a solvent-free resin. I believe there's the first plant that's doing this in the United States. I think it's been 35 years since we've seen a regeneration plant for non-solvent resins, manufacturing non-solvent resins in the United States. It's just, they don't make them here anymore because with all the environmental regulations and plastics and then chemicals like this and, and uh, acids and everything, it takes uh, quite a commitment to make a resin plant. So again, we've just seen our first plant come online in 35 years doing this. But anytime you can remove solvents from the environment, anytime you can uh, make a resin without putting um, background chemicals in it, if you're using it in a high purity application, someplace where the quality is very exacting, it's just a good idea to use as few chemicals as possible in the manufacturing process. Well, speaking of removing, uh, reverse osmosis is a popular technology for purifying any number of typical contaminants. But what are the disadvantages of RO? And specifically, what should professionals look out for when designing these RO systems? Well, reverse osmosis takes ions out of the water and there's, uh, it does a very good job of that, but there's limitations to what they do. And when you're doing a residential RO, to know what an RO will do, it has an NSF ANSI certification, it's a 58 certification. This assigned to it, it's its pedigree. It lists what it will take out, what the percentages of those constituents in the water that it can take out. And that's nice to know, but one thing about that that's different from say a NSF 53 certification for health effects, there's no throughput, there's no gallon requirement set on that system. So if the membrane fails, if it breaks, if something happens to it, or it just basically wears out from age, you don't know how many gallons of water you were supposed to put through that machine before this maintenance was needed. So that's one of the scary things for me, and this personally as a water professional, 
I'd like to know just how long this system should be in service before it's maintained so we can put that out to people because some of the things that are listed on the uh, certification for these ROs are level one health contaminants, level one contaminants in the water. And when you're putting water out for people for their protection, you really need to know how to maintain a system, when to maintain a system, and give them an idea of uh, what's the safest way to use this machine. So not having any throughput numbers, throughput is, means gallons through something, it's a, it's a water word. But uh, that's what I don't like about it. I would, I would like an RO to be in line as part of a treatment train, but then I would look to use some NSF 53 certified final barrier especially if I'm doing level one contaminants after the system or have it built into the RO system so that we have some kind of final barrier treatment with a gallon rating, say it's a thousand gallons or 20,000 gallons, whatever it is. We know what the throughput is for that device and when it needs to be changed because it's been tested for breakthrough to that level. Actually a dead end filtration device like that, if it's got a 20,000 gallon rating, it was tested to 40,000 gallons. So it's a nice, uh, 50% buffer for them. But look for that when you're doing that type of work. And one thing I spent years in uh, the industry helping to promote arsenic removal. And that's one of the things you see real quickly. When you look at a reverse osmosis system and it says it removes arsenic, yes, it does. But it removes arsenic 5, pentavalent arsenic, which is arsenate. It doesn't remove arsenite, which is arsenic 3 that's going to go right through it. So if you haven't speciated your arsenic, if you don't know what you're working with, if you don't know what your uh, different levels are of arsenic three and arsenic five, you might put a system in for a homeowner and they think they're safe. And what if most of the arsenic's um, arsenic three, it all goes through the system. So uh, when you do anything like that, you put it in, you test it, you make sure it works. You make sure that you've got your chemistry correct when you do that. But I guess that's a long-winded answer to reverse osmosis systems. No, that makes a lot of sense that you want to combine the RO with with something that gives you a little bit of a fail-safe as far as throughput. So that makes a lot of sense. And backwash is another popular topic lately. Recovery, reuse, filter backwash water. You've been hearing a lot more about regulations and, and conservation issues. So what are the new developments in technology to recycle filter backwash water? Well, this is something that we've seen now. I think I've seen it for the last 10 years. I spent some time working in, working and living in Nevada and the car washes all had to have water reclamation systems for the water because water's in short supply. California, all along the uh, West Coast, Arizona, water's in short supply. So. We look at any way to conserve water in those areas. And one way to do that is if you've got a backwash system and you can clean that water up for reuse, you can maybe store it, treat it, sanitize it, and use it for backwash again. There's a lot of new developing technologies, but also a lot of those technologies have been around for a long, long time. They're just new to the water industry. Actually, where I work now, Par Green is a process separation company and that was something new to me when I went there to take over their technical, be their technical advisor for the water division and manage the water division. I had no idea what process filtration was. It's, it's kind of neat. But what they do is 
they separate solids from water. It's called separation technologies and filtration technologies. But there's a lot of systems on that side of the equation. They're kind of a sister company, sister industry to water. They've got pancake filters that lay in a lay in a housing and they take things out one pancake at a time. A pancake covers the whole filter and they're different sizes. I'd never seen a pancake filter before, but yeah, they've got systems like that. They've got bag filters. They've got tubular backwashing filters that take debris from water and they run continuously and they self-flush with clean water. And clean water backwash is something that you can do and recycle all this water in the process, but it's basically separating solids from this water. When you're doing that type of work, especially you're on the water side, something that you really, really need to know is what size particles are we trying to take out? What is this debris that's in the water? Is it colloidal? What size is it? So when you attack anything like water reuse, water reclamation, especially filtering this backwash, you need to go at this first with a particle size analysis and know the volume and the size of the particles you're trying to remove. And that's not something we work with a lot on the water side of things. We'll put in a filter, filtering device, and it's a backwashing filter, and it'll collect things and push them back down a drain. But in this type of technology, you need to work with people that know what they're doing and actually know what a particle size analysis is. So it's a, uh, it's a great tool to then go back at this and apply the correct technology. It might be dead end filtration through bag filters where you can just separate the particles through bags and throw the bags away. It can be on larger scales. It can just be continuous operating uh, tubular filters. There's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting things, especially someone with my background. I think they're I think this stuff's really neat and it's really interesting to see how it works. But uh, a lot of technologies, a lot of ways to do it. But you really got to do your homework, especially if you're new into that part of the industry. I feel like that's the, the foundation of the water treatment industry is know what you're working with, whether it's arsenic three or arsenic five or size of particles. It's You got to figure that part out before you can really move forward. Yeah, I was just going to say, sorry, it's just very interesting. When I went and met with Par Green for the first time. The owner said that what got me hired was I said, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And you, that's very, very important to what we're doing here. Absolutely. And, and you've said before that you can't fool science. So as people figure out what they're working with and start working on these problems and systems and things like that, there are so many options. There are a lot of technologies. There's a lot of products. There's a lot of different ways you can solve a problem, but it's usually not just one solution to every problem. So how can people in the water treatment industry sort of evaluate that idea and come to solutions and use new technology and new ideas in terms of solving for these problems? Well, just like you said, and I say it over and over in my training, and I'm sure the people who have been around me for years have heard it a million times, sound science and sound engineering. If those are not the practices you're using, you better back up and start over again. One thing you're seeing, I just saw it in an ad today and I had to laugh because we were doing this. I was looking at some claims that came across on a system. Claims are not science. Testimonials are not science. True science is something that can be tested, it's testable, it's measurable, and it's repeatable. So when someone tells me that they're softening water, but yet the calcium and 
hardness, the magnesium hardness, the, the hardness minerals are still in the water. That water's not soft. Soft water is removal of hardness minerals. You have to be able to test and see that the hardness minerals are out. You need to measure the level of removal for the hardness minerals. And you have to be able to continually do this over and over again so you didn't just buy something that's a single pass or very low throughput system. So I know that there's popular systems out there. I have answered this question till I'm tired of hearing it. You know, what do you think about those no salt softeners? Well, tell me more. I wanna see the science. I'm not saying that the technology's wrong, but I do want to see the science. I don't wanna see testimonials. I don't wanna see claims. I wanna see science. And you show me the science and you show me how it works. Hey, great, you've solved a huge problem and let's move forward with that. But when you're looking at a system, you really need to look at how was it tested? What third-party validation was done? What was the challenge water that they used? What was the technology they used for testing it? How was, how was it measured? You really gotta do your homework. You can't just have someone come in and say, hey, look at this, this does this, this guy says so. No, no. Sound science, sound engineering, measurable, testable, repeatable. It's not those things and it can't be validated and certified. Use something else that is. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. That's one of the reasons we're so thrilled to have you back on the WCNP Technical Review Committee. That's, that's exactly what we're striving for with our articles in our magazine is that we want to make sure that we are conveying the science and not the latest claim or a trend that you've heard of and things of that sort. So we appreciate you helping to put that mindset into to the articles we publish. Now, let's talk about your day job. Pargreen. Pargreen bills itself as industrial system focused and not a traditional water treatment dealer. Tell me what that means. Yeah, I'd mentioned it before. Pargreen is a process filtration, process separations firm. They work with liquids, it's not just water. And when they are walk, working with water, it's usually a high purity water that they're treating for a final use in pharmaceutical. Uh, we do water for injectables and pharmaceutical for all kinds of pharmaceutical manufacturing. Really, really important that the quality of water be met, that the standards are validated and uh, the water, the liquid, it could be plasma. I know we do plasma, dextrose, all kinds of different liquids and fluids that we treat. So that's what Pargreen was. Actually, Pargreen started in the ink industry, of all things, and they were filtering ink, which is really a sticky mess. But uh, that's how they built the business. And as printing went away, they re redesigned themselves, re-engineered themselves. And from the process, they were in these big industrial plants walking right past the water equipment. And people were saying to them, hey, can you work on that? And the answer was, no, we don't do that. Well, then at some point they decided, why are we walking past these opportunities and why are we not helping our customer and being a single source provider for services for them when we walk into their building? So that's where the water division came from. I was brought on as a technical advisor when they were a few years into that because they needed someone who'd basically seen more and been around longer and had some technical experience with large systems. So that's how I ended up over there, first as a technical advisor and then the general manager of water. But uh, 
from the industrial water as we expanded that and recreated that uh, side of the business, we fell into an opportunity to represent and be a master distributor for a control valve with ceramic internals with no wear parts. It's made out of ceramic and graphene. And for me, who's been around pistons and seals and spacers and flappers and wear parts their whole career, this was something very unique and there was a way to market this to the plumbing channel. So we added that to our product line and now that's actually grown and become a bigger part of what we do. But when we say we're not a traditional water treatment dealer, we've never sold equipment to uh, residential installations. We've never been on that side of the business. It's always been big stuff. I always say we kind of come at this from the top down. Our knowledge is industrial science. We have lots of experts in uh, in very complex systems. So that really helps Pargreen be very good at designing the systems for residential use because we use that same mindset of engineering, design, uh, sustainability, practicality of systems, things that stay in service and don't have to be serviced all the time. So that's how we come at this thing. And uh, it's been exciting at this point in my career, um, working with these with this company, with these folks, it's been enjoyable. So I shouldn't say has been, I'm still there. Understood, yes. Well, you know, you've touched on this through Pargreen and, and through your own experience. There's so many different parts of water treatment. Uh, so many different types of projects, so many different sizes, so many different, you know, areas of engineering and chemistry. So what do you say to folks that are in, interested in entering the water treatment industry? What, do you, what advice do you give? Why is this a great area to make your career? Were you reading my notes? <laughs> uh, <laughs> reading your mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary. No, uh, first thing in my notes as I was looking, thinking about this is pick a lane. There are so many things. There's so many disciplines. If you want a, a uh, career in water, and man, could we use you. We are so short of people. We had uh, our industrial division finding service techs. We actually had to reinvent that because there just were no industrial service techs available anywhere. And the few that were around got got stolen up by the highest bidder and, and all of them are long in the tooth. So boy, pick a lane, but we sure would love to show you the different disciplines. It could be service. Service and installation is huge. There's just uh, no technical trade folks available. And if they are, they're usually family and they're not going to let go of them or someone's found them and they hang on to them very, very tightly. So we really, really need a training program to bring people into our industry. But whether it's, uh, again, service or installation, whether that you want to go into sales, you want to go into design like I have been in. And again, we're all salespeople. Let's not kid ourselves. But uh, then there's residential systems. There's private well systems, commercial systems, industrial high purity. There's lots of different avenues to go into. But what I would say to someone is pick a lane. And then what you do, kind of like what I had to do myself because I wasn't going to just uh, graduate from high school and then start trying to sell complex systems. I wanted to be educated. I, I was fascinated uh, by this stuff. So if you're going to do high purity stuff, if you're going to do industrial stuff, and if you want to do this, be on the design side, work on that side of the business, consider engineering school. Man, could we use more engineers in this business? Uh, if you're going to work on a plumbing, the plumbing side, installation side, it wouldn't hurt to go to a trade program 
learn how to plumb, learn code, learn how to, wiring systems work, maybe even take some courses, uh, Alan Bradley courses, and learn how PLCs work, ladder logic. All those things are needed within the industry. Every level, every discipline in our industry needs people, and we need educated people. I was looking for some programs when we were, I knew we were going to have this discussion. I just went online like I was someone, and I maybe uh, would be a little better at a Google search than others because I, I kind of have an idea what this is, but there's I didn't find anything. There's some ion exchange engineering programs, very complex environmental engineering programs. That's all you see. I know some Votex have tried to put some programs in, but no one knows what this industry really is because it's kind of a niche. It's, it's a really small industry. Dad raised three of us and all of us worked. My little brother still runs a family business. So we need job fairs. We need programs. We need magazines like uh, Water Conditioning Purification Magazine to get the word out to people. Uh, how, do we, how do we show people that there is a career here? And once you're in water and you know what you're doing, the sky's the limit. You can live anywhere, go anywhere in this country. It's uh, it's a great industry to work in. So, but again, if you're gonna if you're gonna do this, do some kind of education, find some kind of program, and it may be a mentoring program or an apprentice program with a with an existing company, a Culligan or or whoever, one of the many independents, and A.O. Smiths in the industry now, Franklin's in um, electrics in the industry. I think you'll see more of that. But uh, yeah, we're really hurting. So I've ranted long enough on that. I agree with you. The more that I learn about the water treatment industry, the more areas there are. You know, it's about figuring out sort of what you're good at and what you want to do, because you're right. There's really something for everyone. You like interacting with people. Sales would be great. You know, you like numbers and math and chemistry, you know, move to the technical side. You like solving problems with your hands. You know, installation might be better for you. There's just so many places and options and and ways to be in the industry. And I agree, there needs to be more publicity about it. You know, like you said, what are the good programs? Where are the places people can get educated or get started? It's it's so critical, especially now with this this whole upset in in labor and and resignations and things like that. We need we need good folks. Yeah, it could be as simply as a WQA and inviting uh People from a trade school, I've seen that in Chicago uh, at plumbing events, invite the young people in from the trade school to sit in on some of the classes free of charge to see what it's all about. There's creative ways to attract this next generation because they're hearing more and more about trades. And uh, my brother's quite a bit younger than me and he's got teenage children and they're looking at, and my great nephew is looking at the trades rather than college. And I'm saying, go guys, go, but yep. We need, we need to shout this loud and long and uh, get uh, people to know who we are and what we do because it's, it's a great career. Agreed. Agreed. Trades are awesome. And like you said, more and more folks need to consider them because it is a great option. It can be a fantastic career for young folks. So you mentioned Chicago, and I know that you have lived sort of all different places in the Midwest. Um, Chicago is sort of the landmark city of the Midwest, personal favorite of mine. And what do you tell folks about Chicago? Someone's coming to visit. What do you tell them are the must-see places or things to eat or things to do? What are your favorites? 
See, that's the beauty of uh, today's world. I, I work from Iowa City, but uh, I get to travel to Chicago. So I go in, I spend a few days, I enjoy myself. I, even going into Chicago for work is always a blast because uh, great restaurants, things to see, uh, places to go, and then turn around and go home. But uh, in Chicago, if you're going to Chicago, one thing I would recommend highly, especially if you want to go downtown just to visit, take the train. Stay out in one of the western suburbs and take the train in. I do that frequently if I've got to go downtown. But downtown, you got Michigan Avenue. There's parks all along there. There are different names. There's fountains. There's there's the big shiny bean. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's just a enormous uh, chrome polished bean. It's amazing to see. And you wonder how did they do that? But that's something to see. The Sears Tower. You go up on top of that. The Hancock Building, looking over the lake in the evening for a cocktail. Great restaurants, things to do downtown. But what I have found, and our our location is on the western side of the Chicago area, cities like Wheaton and St. Charles and Naperville that used to be towns and now they've been absorbed by the greater Chicago area, but they all have main streets. They all have their own identities. There's areas where you can walk down a city street in a nice little community and there's just restaurants lined up on both sides of the road and they're all fabulous. Uh, if I was going to Chicago, I would stay in the western suburbs, maybe in a, like Wheaton or, or St. Charles, and uh, then jump on a train, go in, do my thing, come back out, and then enjoy the uh, the local hospitality of those small communities. Uh, if you're going, if you're in a Wheaton area, there's a little restaurant called Sognos, and you just go up about, it's a straight stair, but it's about two stories. You go all the way up the stairs, and there's this wonderful uh, little uh, Italian restaurant. Everything's handmade. Um, the risotto is fabulous, but it's just a it's just a fun, great place to be. the The owner will come and visit you and talk wine with you. You can go up to the balcony on a nice evening. But uh, yeah, Chicago is a really, really cool place, and there's so many neat things to do. And then if you take the train in, you stop at the French Market and uh, you go down there for a sandwich and all the uh, the the briskets and all the different meats and things that they've got in there for lunch. It's just, there's nothing like it. So it's a cool place, but like I say, don't drive downtown if you don't have to. Agreed. And you're talking my language, local flavor and all the good foods. I'm all about what to eat when I go somewhere new. Well, Matt, thank you for your time today. It's been great to talk about resin technology and other topics in the water treatment industry. For more information on resin applications and other topics in the water treatment industry, visit Water Conditioning and Purification International magazine at wcponline.com.